As we've been using the morning prayer liturgy, you might have noticed, if you pay attention to these sorts of things, that we've been using a different post-communion prayer. And if you haven't, look in your bulletin, the very back, the last page, where it says post-communion prayer. You'll notice the name of the prayer is called the General Thanksgiving. And in the General Thanksgiving, we pray a general prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer where we list all the different things as Christians that we're thankful for. And on that list, there's something specific that we thank God for. Look at the section where it says, we bless you. It reads, we bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. The means of grace. What is that? That's what I want to talk to you about today. But I want to answer that by telling you a little bit about my own spiritual life, how I ended up here at Church of the Redeemer, Anglican, and not at some other church. I am getting old. If you don't believe me, a couple weeks ago I was administering state testing at the high school, and I'm pretty sure I sprained my ankle through administering the test. (laughs) So this story is from a long time ago, about 18 years ago, about two decades, when I had just started college. At this point in my life, I had already figured everything out. Not just life in general, but I was pretty much an expert in everything that's in the Bible. After all, I'd been baptized as a Christian for about two years at this point, and I was enrolled at a Bible college out in the panhandle. And I was paying my dues, sitting through classes, so that eventually, when I got out of there, I'd be able to go out into the world, and I'd go set the world straight, especially the church. Sometimes I even felt like I was wasting my time there. Old men in suits were trying to tell me how they thought the world ought to be, and I was so progressive and so insightful that I, I failed out my first year. The very first class I failed in college was Preaching 101. Bill reminded me that today is graduation recognition day, So I thought you guys wanted to hear my inspiring story. (laughs) Needless to say, shortly thereafter, I had to move back home and reevaluate some things. It was a humbling, frustrating, and as parents will understand, an expensive experience. It was one that I needed to go through, and while I can look back on it and laugh now, I promise you at the time, my parents weren't thinking about how great and character building this was. Uh, They didn't even think there was anything to laugh about, but it happened. And it happened for a lot of reasons, and it's not an uncommon story. Um, And there's always multiple factors. Um, Big part of it was I didn't know what I was doing there. And that's the general situation with people in in my situation. I had vague guesses, inclination, naive hopes, idealistic plans... 
But in reality, I wouldn't have been able to explain those things to you. And part of the reason was because I didn't even know where I was going with all this. I, I didn't know what my purpose in being at school was. Uh, more than anything, though, I didn't have a clear sense of who I was. One of the biggest questions of identity that I went through in my college years, and one that many, many Christian people experienced during that period of their life, is coming to terms with Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount. The statement that not everyone cries to me, Lord, Lord, knows me. To some people, Jesus is going to say, depart from me, wicked one, for I never knew you. And those words terrified me, and sometimes they still do. Graduates, one of the challenges that you will face in the upcoming years is the same question. Who am I? Specifically, who am I to God? Am I his? Am I one of his sheep? Or am I just a pretender? Am I really just a hypocrite? This was a question that I wrestled with for years, especially because I was discipled in the Calvinist tradition, and there were basically two answers. You were either elect or not elect. And how do you figure out which one you are? And, uh, you know, am I one of the people that God chose to save or am I not? And so there I was. I was left with this deep, perilous question. And I was left to my own devices in a community of a lot of people that were basically the same as me. Sometimes I would go on long walks through the city and I would just be filled with anxiety. Am I saved? Who am I to God? What am I doing here? And the only place that I knew to look was inward. I knew that I could say whatever I needed to my friends. I could tell pastors what they wanted to hear. It was easy to play the right part, but the only place I knew where I could look to be sincere, the only person that I thought I might not be able to trick, was myself. It seemed like a good plan. If I wanted to know if I'm a child of God, all I had to do was look inwardly. All I had to do was look at myself. But here's the problem. When I looked inward, when I looked at myself, when I looked at my heart, when I meditated deeply on who I was to God, the problem was that I did see my heart, that I did see myself, and that I did see who I was, and that it wasn't a pretty picture. Because when I looked at myself to see who I was, what I saw was arrogance. What I saw was pride. What I saw was lust. What I saw was foolishness. What I saw was selfishness. What I saw was, it's what the Christian tradition calls sin. And that was the only place I knew how to answer that question of how God thought of me. And all I found was a lonely, proud, and empty sinner. I searched and searched to find the grace of God. And the only thing that I could find was my own fleshly nature. I looked for God, for signs of his love in my heart, and all I could see was that I was ready to be damned. Now, of course, no one's this dark all the time, and I'd go through seasons of optimism, and I'd, I'd pay special attention to whenever I put in efforts of repentance. Uh, but the problem was, it's just so easy to lie to yourself. Uh, even your best gestures are always tainted with sin. I needed to find grace, but the problem was I didn't know where I could look. And the answer is here, in the great thanksgiving. In the great thanksgiving, 
we bless God for, among other things, the means of grace. In our psalm today, Psalm 68, especially in verses 7 through 10, God's presence is like one of those storm clouds that you see in cartoons, where the character stands under his own personal cloud, and as he moves, the storm cloud is following him. There's a scene like this in a movie called The Truman Show, where Truman looks up, and there's, sure enough, his own little cloud. Except in the psalm, it's not depicted uh, as a joke. It's depicted to help us understand what God's grace is like. In the psalm, uh, it's an illustration of his grace being depicted as storm clouds moving through the desert, bringing life to a parched land. And the only way to get the rain that those clouds have isn't just to sit there and look at yourself. You don't find relief for your sin-parched souls by looking deeper into them. Instead, you go where the rain is. You go where the grace is. In the psalm, the clouds are a means of grace. And the thing that I didn't know to do, the thing that kept me wandering through sin-parched lands, was that I never knew to go where the grace is. Jesus prays in our gospel reading that we, all of us, would be sanctified in God's truth, that we would remain in his love through the gift of the Spirit. But what I didn't realize is that the Spirit is like a storm cloud and that our job, as Paul says elsewhere, is to keep in step with the Spirit, go where the grace is. When we give thanks in the general thanksgiving for the means of grace, that's what we're talking about. This is what we're giving thanks for. We're thankful that God doesn't have us wander through the desert, seeking water according to our best efforts, but instead, God shows forth his grace and nourishes our faith through actual, visible, concrete acts outside of us. That is to say, he gives us his grace through the sacraments, the means of grace. What's so special about these means, these instruments? What is it about them that makes them so unique? Why should we seek these things specifically? What do they offer us that we can't get elsewhere? Well, specifically, they offer us Christ himself. Christ said in the gospel that for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in truth. Jesus, our great high priest, is, so, is holy so that we can be too. Jesus himself is the greatest sacrament. And the Gospels tell us that on the cross, Jesus' side was pierced, and out of his side flowed blood and water. Now, the blood and water have an Old Testament meaning. When Moses led his people out of Egypt, he did it by the Passover, where the blood of the Lamb protected the people of God from the angel of death, and it passed over them, and then it brought judgment on the Egyptians. He saved the Jewish people by blood. And then the Jews fled from Pharaoh, and Moses led the people through the waters of the Red Sea in a great exodus. He saved the Jewish people by water. Passover and exodus, blood and water. To this day, these are some of the most defining moments in the history of Israel. Powerful acts through which he graciously delivered his people. And now I'd like you to turn to our epistle reading. 1 John chapter 5. In our epistle, John explains that Jesus Christ is the one that came by water and blood. In verse 9, John says that the Spirit 
and the water and the blood are the testimony of God about his son. These three things, the spirit, the water, and the blood, tell us who Jesus is. Going back to my dilemma, I wanted to know God. Or more specifically, I wanted to know that I actually knew God and that I wasn't deceiving myself. I needed to know where to find that assurance. I needed to know not just who God is, but more to the point, I needed to know who I was to God. What does God think of me? I looked everywhere, deep inside myself, to find that assurance, to find a witness, to find some evidence, some testimony that I could believe that I was one of God's children, that I wasn't a deceitful hypocrite, that I wasn't just a pretender. Here in the epistle, you get a glimmer of this hope. Because if you're looking for the grace of the witness, of testimony, if you want to hear the word of God, John tells you three specific places where you can find that testimony. But it starts like John's teaching isn't much help because it seems like the testimony is not a testimony about us, but about Jesus, his son. But read closer. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, he says, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. In himself. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you yourself have the testimony. He spells this out more in the next verse, in verse 11. That the content of that testimony, the thing that the witness tells us is this. It says that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. Think about what that means. The three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, tells us that God gave us eternal life. Read verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You want eternal life and to know that you have it? Go where the grace is. Follow the storm clouds of the gospel. Find the means of grace and drink it up. The means of grace are the water and the blood through the power of the Spirit. The sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. Baptism marks our great exodus from the world of sin and death, our deliverance from the evil powers, and the beginning of our walk into the promised land. Through baptism, God marks us as Christ's own forever and bears a permanent testimony of his grace that will continue with us into and after the grave, a testimony that we share in Christ's death on the cross and profit from all the benefits that he procured there for us. If only we will respond to his testimony with faith. In baptism, God answers the question of who you are to God. Who are you? You are a holy people, a royal priesthood, inheritors of the spirit of the living Christ, sharers in his resurrection, made friends of God, brothers and sisters of God's very own son. To believe otherwise is what verse 10 says is calling God a liar. And how surely can you know this? As surely as we can feel the drops of water running down our face. All the sacraments gain their meaning and coherence from the Incarnation. John tells us in the opening of his gospel that the eternal word of God himself took on flesh and dwelt among us. Christianity is such an earthy religion. Our God actually became a human being with all the frailty, smallness, and texture that that implies. 
Our God has skin and bones and muscles and sinews. As Lewis said, there's no sense in trying to be more more spiritual than God. He likes matter. He invented it. And he doesn't leave us to our own devices. Staring deep into the mysterious depths of our soul, trying to find certainty that he is ours and we are heads. Instead, God dumps a bucket of water over our heads. Does God love you? I don't know. Is water wet? But as John said, Christ did not just come by water, but by water and the blood. The other witness of the God of the cross that gives himself for us is the bread and wine of the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, God makes himself food for our souls. He sustains us and more deeply ties us together the way that Jesus prayed, that we may all be one as closely as the Father and the Son is one. The Eucharist is a testimony of the blood of the cross, because by it, we are called to bear one another's burdens as one family, as Christ lays his life down to turn his enemies into brothers. In the Eucharist, God assures us that he will prolong our faith and continue to garnish upon us gifts of his grace and mercy, much like a parent can understand buying Christmas presents for their children, even when they know that sometimes their children are miserable and unworthy. Parenting teaches you a lot about the grace of the Father towards us. That is, among many other virtues, the Eucharist trains us. It testifies to us of God's patience towards us. Who are we to God? We are his children, whom he loves in grace, and mercifully so. Some of my fondest memories in becoming Anglican go back to a parish in Orlando that I visited for a while. The kneelers at the altar were much closer to the cross, and I would come there week after week. And the whole reason I would be there is because the way the Anglican liturgy works is we get an opportunity to confess our sins and make amends with God every service, and then we move on to communion. So I would bring my sins, and eagerly I would look forward to confessing them. Hearing God's word of forgiveness to me, and then continue to eat from his hand, unworthily, but thankfully. And you would kneel at the altar and receive communion. As you did, you would stare right at the cross because it was right in front of you. And you knew that you weren't getting a free ride. You knew that the grace of God wasn't cheap. You were receiving the sacrificial gift of God on his dime. And you had nothing to offer except thanksgiving and praise. You're what C.S. Lewis calls a jolly beggar. And how well could you believe that? How certain could you be that the eternal life of the Son of God made flesh was properly yours? As surely as you could taste the bread on your tongue, and as warmly as the wine ran down your throat. These are the means of grace, the place where the Spirit of God reigns down, drawing you closer to the Word, closer to Christ Himself. They have their beginning and end at the cross of Jesus. And God gives them to us for the sake of our faith, so that we may know that we have eternal life. Graduates, as you go out, remember these. Remember the means of grace. Many of you will be in a position where you'll need to begin finding a new church home. This is exciting and dangerous. Paul says to the Galatians that the church is our mother. Your mother gave birth to you, 
and reminds you where you came from. You were, after all, born from the waters of her womb, just as Christ himself. Your mother feeds you and nourishes you. She also disciplines you when you go astray, but always with an eye towards grace and forgiveness. As you go out, go where the grace is. Don't look to yourselves or even to your peers. Rather, find a place that proclaims the gospel of God that will constantly remind you, witness to you through the spirit, the water, and the blood. If this isn't the testimony of the place you go to, then understand that you do this at the peril of your own faith. Honor your mother. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand in response.